Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Kim by Rudyard Kipling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kim by Rudyard Kipling. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 13, Part 1. Who hath desired the sea, the immense, contemptuous surges? The shudder, the stumble, the swerve, ere the star-stabbing bowsprit emerges. The orderly clouds of the trades, and the ridged roaring sapphire thereunder. Unheralded cliff-lurking floors, and the headsails, low-volleying thunder. His sea in no wonder the same, his sea and the same in each wonder. His sea that his being fulfils? So and no otherwise, so and no otherwise, hillmen desire their hills. The Sea and the Hills Who goes to the hills goes to his mother. They had crossed the Siwaliks and the half-tropical dune, left Masuri behind them, and headed north along the narrow hill-roads. Day after day they struck deeper into the huddled mountains, and day after day Kim watched the lama return to a man's strength. Among the terraces of the dune he had leaned on the boy's shoulder, ready to profit by wayside halts. Under the great ramp to Masuri he drew himself altogether as an old hunter faces a well-remembered bank, and where he should have sunk exhausted, swung his long draperies about him, drew a deep double lungful of the diamond air, and walked as only a hillman can. Kim, plains bred and plains fed, sweated and panted, astonished. "'This is my country,' said the lama. "'Besides Sudsen, this is flatter than a rice-field.' and with steady, driving strokes from the loins he strode upwards. But it was on the steep downhill marches, three thousand feet in three hours, that he went utterly away from Kim, whose back arched with holding back, and whose big toe was nigh cut off by his grass sandal-string. Through the speckled shadow of the great deodar forests, through oak-feathered and plumed with ferns, birch, ilex, rhododendron, and pine, out on the bare hillside slippery sunburnt grass, and back into the woodlands coolth again, till oak gave way to bamboo and palm of the valley, the lama swung untiring. Glancing back in the twilight at the huge ridges behind him, and the faint thin line of the road whereby they had come, he would lay out with a hillman's generous breadth of vision 
fresh marches for the morrow, or, halting in the neck of some uplifted pass that gave on Spiti and Kulu, would stretch out his hands yearningly towards the high snows of the horizon. In the dawns they flared windy red above stark blue, as Kedarnath and Badrinath, kings of that wilderness, took the first sunlight. All day long they lay like molten silver under the sun, and at evening put on their jewels again. At first they breathed temperately upon the travellers, winds good to meet when one crawled over some gigantic hog's back. But in a few days, at a height of nine or ten thousand feet, those breezes bit. And Kim kindly allowed a village of hillmen to acquire merit by giving him a rough blanket-coat. The lama was mildly surprised that any one should object to the knife-edged breezes which had cut the years off his shoulders. "'These are but the lower hills, Chela. There is no cold till we come to the true hills. Air and water are good, and the people are devout enough, but the food is very bad,' Kim growled. "'And we walk as though we were mad, or English.' It freezes at night, too. A little, maybe, but only enough to make old bones rejoice in the sun. We must not always delight in soft beds and rich food. We might at least keep to the road. Kim had all a plainsman's affection for the well-trodden track, not six feet wide, that snaked among the mountains but the lama, being Tibetan, could not refrain from shortcuts over spurs and the rims of gravel-strewn slopes. As he explained to his limping disciple, a man bred among mountains can prophesy the course of a mountain road, and though low-lying clouds might be a hindrance to a short-cutting stranger, they made no earthly difference to a thoughtful man. Thus, after long hours of what would be reckoned very fair mountaineering in civilized countries, they would pant over a saddleback, sidle past a few landslips, and drop through forest at an angle of forty-five onto the road again. Along their track lay the villages of the hill folk, mud and earth huts, timbers now and then rudely carved with an axe, clinging like swallows' nests against the steeps huddled on tiny flats halfway down a three-thousand-foot glissade, jammed into a corner between cliffs that funnelled and focused every wandering blast, or, for the sake of summer pasture, cowering down on a neck that in winter would be ten feet deep in snow. And the people, the sallow, greasy, duffel-clad people, with short, bare legs and faces almost esquimo, would flock out and adore. The plains, kindly and gentle, had treated the lama as a holy man among holy men. But the hills worshipped him as one in the confidence of all their devils. Theirs was an almost obliterated Buddhism, overlaid with a nature-worship fantastic as their own landscapes, elaborate as the terracing of their tiny fields but they recognized the big hat, the clicking rosary, and the rare Chinese texts for great authority, and they respected the man beneath the hat. 
"'We see thee come down over the black breasts of Ewa,' said a betar who gave them cheese, sour milk, and stone-hard bread one evening. "'We do not use that often, except when carving cows stray in summer. There is a summer wind amongst those stones that casts men down on the stillest day. But what should such folk care for the devil of Ewa?' Then did Kim— aching in every fibre, dizzy with looking down, footsore with cramping, desperate toes in inadequate crannies, take joy in the day's march, such joy as a boy of St. Xavier's, who had won the quarter-mile on the flat, might take in the praises of his friends. The hills sweated the gee and sugar-suet off his bones. The dry air, taken sobbingly at the head of cruel passes, firmed and built out his upper ribs, and the tilted levels put new hard muscles into calf and thigh. They meditated often on the wheel of life, the more so since, as the lama said, they were freed from its visible temptations. Except the grey eagle and an occasional far-seen bear grubbing and rooting on the hillside, a vision of a furious painted leopard met at dawn in a still valley devouring a goat, and now and again a bright-coloured bird. They were alone with the winds and the grass singing under the wind. The women of the smoky huts over whose roofs the two walked as they descended the mountains were unlovely and unclean, wives of many husbands and afflicted with goitre. The men were woodcutters, when they were not farmers, meek, and of an incredible simplicity. But that suitable discourse might not fail, fate sent them, overtaking and overtaken on the road, the courteous Dakar physician, who paid for his food in ointments good for goiter, and counsels that restore peace between men and women. He seemed to know these hills as well as he knew the hill dialects and gave the lama the lie of the land towards Ladek and Tibet. He said they could return to the plains at any moment. Meanwhile, for such as loved mountains, yonder road might amuse. This was not at all revealed in a breath, but at evening encounters on the stone threshing-floors, when, patients disposed of, the doctor would smoke, and the lama snuff, while Kim watched the wee cows grazing on the housetops, or threw his soul after his eye across the deep blue gulfs between range and range. And there were talks apart in the dark woods, when the doctor would seek herbs, and Kim, as a budding physician, must accompany him. "'You see, Mr. O'Hara, I do not know what the deuce and all I shall do when I find our sporting friends, but if you will kindly keep within sight of my umbrella—' which is a fine fixed point for cadastral survey, I shall feel much better." Kim looked out across the jungle of peaks. "'This is not my country, Hakim. Easier, I think, to find one louse in a bearskin.' "'Oh, that is my strong points. There is no hurry for hurry. They were at Leh not so long ago. They said they had come down from the Karakarum with their heads and horns and all. I am only afraid they will have sent back all their letters and compromising things from Leh into Russian territory. Of course, 
They will walk away as far to the east as possible, just to show that they were never among the western states. You do not know the hills?" He scratched with a twig on the earth. Look! They should have come in by Srinagar or Abbottabad. That is their short road. Down the river by Banji and Astor. But they have made mischief in the west, so— He drew a furrow from left to right. They march, and they march away east to Leh. Ah, it is cold there, and down the Indus to Hanleh. I know that road. And then down, you see, to Bushahar and Chini Valley. That is ascertained by process of elimination, and also by asking questions from people that I cure so well. Our friends have been a long time playing about and producing impressions, so they are well known from far off. You will see me catch them somewhere in Chini Valley. Please keep your eye on the umbrella." It nodded like a wind-blown harebell down the valleys and round the mountain-sides, and in due time the Lama and Kim, who steered by compass, would overhaul it, vending ointments and powders at eventide. "'We came by such and such a way.' The Lama would throw a careless finger backward at the ridges, and the umbrella would expand itself in compliments. They crossed the snowy pass in cold moonlight, when the Lama, mildly chaffing Kim, went through up to his knees like a Bactrian camel, the snow-bred shag-haired sort that come into the Kashmir Sarai. They dipped across beds of light snow and snow-powdered shale, where they took refuge from a gale in a camp of Tibetans hurrying down tiny sheep, each laden with a bag of borax. They came out upon grassy shoulders, still snow-speckled, and through forest to grass anew. For all their marchings, Kedarnath and Badrinath were not impressed, and it was only after days of travel that Kim, uplifted upon some insignificant ten-thousand-foot hummock, could see that a shoulder-knot or horn of the two great lords had, ever so slightly, changed outline. At last they entered a world within a world, a valley of leagues where the high hills were fashioned of the mere rubble and refuse from off the knees of the mountains. Here one day's march carried them no farther. It seemed that a dreamer's clogged pace bears him in a nightmare. They skirted a shoulder painfully for hours, and, behold, it was but an outlying boss in an outlying buttress of the main pile. A rounded meadow revealed itself when they had reached it for a vast tableland running far into the valley. Three days later it was a dim fold in the earth to the southward. "'Surely the gods live here,' said Kim, beaten down by the silence and the appalling sweep and dispersal of the cloud-shadows after rain. "'This is no place for men.' "'Long and long ago,' said the Lama, as to himself, "'it was asked of the Lord whether the world were everlasting. To this the Excellent One returned no answer. When I was in Ceylon, a wise seeker confirmed that, from the Gospel, 
which is written in Pali. Certainly, since we know the way to freedom, the question were unprofitable. But look, and no illusion, Chela. These are the true hills. They are like my hills by Sutsen. Never were such hills. Above them, still enormously above them, earth towered away towards the snow-line, where from east to west, across hundreds of miles, ruled as with a ruler, the last of the bold birches stopped. Above that, in scarps and blocks upheaved, the rocks strove to fight their heads above the white smother. Above these again, changeless since the world's beginning, but changing to every mood of sun and cloud, lay out the eternal snow. They could see blots and blurs on its face where storm and wandering Wooliwa got up to dance. Below them, as they stood, the forest slid away in a sheet of blue-green for mile upon mile. Below the forest was a village in its sprinkle of terraced fields and steep grazing grounds. Below the village they knew, through a thunderstorm worried and growled there for the moment, a pitch of twelve or fifteen hundred feet gave to the moist valley where the streams gather that are the mothers of young Sutluj. As usual, the lama had led Kim by cow-track and by-road, far from the main route along which Hari Babu, that fearful man, had bucketed three days before through a storm to which nine Englishmen out of ten would have given full right of way. Hari was no game-shot. The snick of a trigger made him change colour, but, as he himself would have said, he was fairly efficient stalker and he had raked the huge valley with a pair of cheap binoculars to some purpose. Moreover, the white of worn canvas tents against green carries far. Hari Babu had seen all he wanted to see when he sat on the threshing-floor of Ziglau, twenty miles away as the eagle flies, and forty by road, that is to say, two small dots, which one day were just below the snow-line, and the next had moved downwards, perhaps six inches, on the hillside. Once cleaned out and set to the work, his fat bare legs could cover a surprising amount of ground, and this was the reason why, while Kim and the Lama lay in a leaky hut at Ziglau till the storm should be overpassed, an oily, wet, but always smiling Bengali, talking the best of English with the vilest of phrases, was ingratiating himself with two sodden and rather rheumatic foreigners. He had arrived, revolving many wild schemes, on the heels of a thunderstorm which had split a pine over against their camp, and so convinced a dozen or two forcibly impressed baggage coolies the day was inauspicious for further travel that, with one accord, they had thrown down their loads and jibbed. They were subjects of a hill-rajah who farmed out their services, as is the custom, for his private gain. And, to add to their personal distresses, the strange sahibs had already threatened them with rifles. The most of them knew rifles and sahibs of old. They were trackers and shikaris of the northern valleys, keen after bear and wild goat, 
but they had never been thus treated in their lives. So the forest took them to her bosom, and, for all oaths and clamour, refused to restore. There was no need to feign madness or—the Babu had thought of another means of securing a welcome. He wrung out his wet clothes, slipped on his patent leather shoes, opened the blue and white umbrella, and with mincing gait and a heart beating against his tonsils, appeared as agent for His Royal Highness, the Raja of Rampur, gentlemen. What can I do for you, please? The gentlemen were delighted. One was visibly French, the other Russian, but they spoke English not much inferior to the Babus. They begged his kind offices. Their native servants had gone sick at Le. They had hurried on because they were anxious to bring the spoils of the chase to Simla ere the skins grew moth-eaten. They bore a general letter of introduction—the Babu salaamed to it orientally—to all government officials. No, they had not met any other shooting parties en route. They did for themselves. They had plenty of supplies. They only wished to push on as soon as might be. At this he waylaid a cowering hillman among the trees, and, after three minutes' talk and a little silver—one cannot be economical upon state service, though Hurry's heart bled at the waste—the eleven coolies and the three hangers-on reappeared. At least the Babu would be a witness to their oppression. "'My royal master, he will be much annoyed, but these people are only common people and grossly ignorant. If your honours will kindly overlook unfortunate affair, I shall be much pleased. In a little while rain will stop, and we can then proceed. You have been shooting, eh? That is fine performance.' He skipped nimbly from one kilter to the next, making pretence to adjust each conical basket. The Englishman is not, as a rule, familiar with the Asiatic, but he would not strike across the wrist a kindly babu who accidentally upset a kilter with a red oilskin top. On the other hand, he would not press drink upon a babu were he never so friendly, nor would he invite him to meet. The strangers did all these things, and asked many questions—about women mostly—to which Hurry returned gay and unstudied answers. They gave him a glass of whitish fluid like to gin, and then more, and in a little time his gravity departed from him. He became thickly treasonous, and spoke in terms of sweeping indecency of a government which had forced upon him a white man's education, and neglected to supply him with a white man's salary. He babbled tales of oppression and wrongs, till the tears ran down his cheeks for the miseries of his land. Then he staggered off, singing love-songs of Lower Bengal, and collapsed upon a wet tree-trunk. Never was so unfortunate a product of English rule in India more unhappily thrust upon aliens. "'They are all just of that pattern,' said one sportsman to the other in French. "'When we get into India proper, thou wilt see. I should like to visit his Raja. One might speak the good word there. It is possible that he has heard of us, and wishes to signify his good will. "'We have not time. We must get into Simla as soon as may be,' his companion replied. "'For my own part, 
I wish our reports had been sent back from Hillas, or even Le. The English post is better and safer. Remember, we are given all facilities, and name of God, they gave them to us too. Is it unbelievable stupidity? It is pride, pride that deserves and will receive punishment. Yes, to fight a fellow continental in our game is something. There is risk attached. But these people, bah, it is too easy. Pride, all pride, my friend. Now, what the deuce is good of Chandanagur being so close to Calcutta and all? said Hari, snoring open-mouthed on the sodden moss. If I cannot understand their French, they talk so particularly fast. It would have been much better to cut their beastly throats. When he presented himself again, he was racked with a headache, penitent and volubly afraid that in his drunkenness he might have been indiscreet. He loved the British government. It was the source of all prosperity and honour, and his master at Rumpur held the very same opinion. Upon this the men began to deride him, and to quote past words, till, step by step, with depreciating smirks, oily grins, and leers of infinite cunning, the poor Babu was beaten out of his defences, and forced to speak truth. When Lurigum was told the tale later, he mourned aloud that he could not have been in the place of the stubborn, inattentive coolies, who, with grass mats over their heads and the raindrops puddling in their footsteps, waited on the weather. All the Sahibs of their acquaintance, rough-clad men joyously returning year after year to their chosen gullies, had servants and cooks and orderlies, very often hillmen. These Sahibs travelled without any retinue. Therefore they were poor Sahibs and ignorant, for no Sahib in his senses would follow a Bengali's advice. But the Bengali, appearing from somewhere, had given them money, and could make shift with their dialect. Used to comprehensive ill-treatment from their own colour, they suspected a trap somewhere, and stood by to run if occasion offered. Then through the new-washed air, steaming with delicious earth smells, the Babu led the way down the slopes, walking ahead of the coolies in pride, walking behind the foreigners in humility. His thoughts were many and various. The least of them would have interested his companions beyond words. But he was an agreeable guide, ever keen to point out the beauties of his royal master's domain. He peopled the hills with anything they had a mind to slay—thar, ibex, or makur, and bear by Alicia's allowance. He discoursed of botany and ethnology with unimpeachable inaccuracy, and his store of local legends—he had been a trusted agent of the State for fifteen years, remember was inexhaustible. "'Decidedly this fellow is an original,' said the taller of the two foreigners. "'He is like the nightmare of a Viennese courier.' "'He represents in Little India in transition, the monstrous hybridism of East and West,' the Russian replied. "'It is we who can deal with Orientals.' "'He has lost his own country, and has not acquired any other.' but he has a most complete hatred of his conquerors. Listen, he confided to me last night," said the other. 
Under the striped umbrella, Hari Babu was straining ear and brain to follow the quick-pawed French, and keeping both eyes on a kilter full of maps and documents, an over-large one with a double red oilskin cover. He did not wish to steal anything. He only desired to know what to steal, and, incidentally, how to get away when he had stolen it. He thanked all the gods of Hindustan and Herbert Spencer that there remained some valuables to steal. End of chapter 13, part 1by Rudyard Kipling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kim by Rudyard Kipling. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 13, Part 2. On the second day the road rose steeply to a grass spur above the forest, and it was here about sunset that they came across an aged lama, but they called him a bonz, sitting cross-legged above a mysterious chart held down by stones which he was explaining to a young man, evidently a neophyte, of singular though unwashen beauty. The striped umbrella had been sighted half a march away, and Kim had suggested a halt till it came up to them. "'Ha!' said Hari Babu resourceful as puss in boots. That is eminent local holy man, probably subject of my royal master. What is he doing? It is very curious. He is expounding holy picture, all hand-worked. The two men stood bareheaded in the wash of the afternoon sunlight, low across the gold-coloured grass. The sullen coolies, glad of the check, halted, and slid down their loads. "'Look,' said the Frenchman, "'it is like a picture for the birth of a religion, the first teacher and the first disciple. Is he a Buddhist?' "'Of some debased kind,' the other asked. "'There are no true Buddhists among the hills. But look at the folds of his drapery. Look at his eyes. How insolent! Why does this make one feel that we are so young a people?' The speaker struck passionately at a tall weed. "'We have nowhere left our mark yet. Nowhere. That, do you understand, is what disquiets me.' He scowled at the placid face and the monumental calm of the pose. "'Have patience. We shall make your mark together, we and you young people. Meantime, draw his picture.' The Babu advanced loftily his back out of all keeping with his deferential speech, or his wink towards Kim. "'Holy one, these be sahibs. My medicines cured one of a flux, and I go into Simla to oversee his recovery. They wish to see thy picture.' "'To heal the sick is always good. This is the wheel of life,' said the lama. "'The same I showed thee in the hut at Ziglar, when the rain fell. And to hear thee expound it. The lama's eyes lightened at the prospect of new listeners. To expound the most excellent way is good. Have they any knowledge of Hindi? 
such as had the keeper of images? A little, maybe. Hereat, simply as a child engrossed with a new game, the lama threw back his head and began the full-throated invocation of the Doctor of Divinity ere he opens the full doctrine. The strangers leaned on their alpenstocks and listened. Kim, squatting humbly, watched the red sunlight on their faces and the blend and parting of their long shadows. They wore un-English leggings and curious girt-in belts that reminded him hazily of the pictures in a book at St. Xavier's Library. The Adventures of a Young Naturalist in Mexico was its name. Yes, they looked very like the wonderful M. Summicrast of that tale, and very unlike the highly unscrupulous folk of Haribabu's imaging. The coolies, earth-coloured and mute, crouched reverently some twenty or thirty yards away, and the babu, the slack of his thin gear snapping like a marking flag in the chill breeze, stood by with an air of happy proprietorship. "'These are the men,' Hari whispered as the ritual went on, and the two whites followed the grass-blade sweeping from hell to heaven and back again. All their books are in the large kilter with the red top. Books and reports and maps. And I have seen a king's letter that either Hillas or Buna has written. They guard it most carefully. They have sent nothing back from Hillas or Leh. That is sure. Who is with them? Only the Bigar coolies. They have no servants. They are so close they cook their own food. But what am I to do? Wait and see. If any chance comes to me, thou wilt know where to seek for the papers. This were better in Mahbub Ali's hands than a Bengali's, said Kim scornfully. There are more ways of getting to a sweetheart than butting down a wall. See here, the hell appointed for avarice and greed, flanked upon the one side by desire and on the other by weariness the lama warmed to his work and one of the strangers sketched him in the quick fading light that is enough the man said at last brusquely i cannot understand him but i want that picture he is a better artist than i ask him if he will sell it he says no sir the babu replied the lama, of course, would no more have parted with his chart to a casual wayfarer than an archbishop would pawn the holy vessels of the cathedral. All Tibet is full of cheap reproductions of the wheel, but the lama was an artist, as well as a wealthy abbot in his own place. "'Perhaps in three days, or four, or ten, if I perceive that the Sahib is a seeker, and of good understanding i may myself draw him another but this was used for the initiation of a novice tell him so hakim he wishes it now for money the lama shook his head slowly and began to fold up the wheel the russian on his side saw no more than an unclean old man haggling over a dirty piece of paper he drew out a handful of rupees and snatched half-jestingly at the chart which tore in the lama's grip a low murmur of horror went up from the coolies 
some of whom were Spiti men, and by their lights good Buddhists. The lama rose at the insult. His hand went to the heavy iron pen-case, that is the priest's weapon, and the babu danced in agony. No, you see, you see why I wanted witnesses. These are highly unscrupulous people. Oh, sir, sir, you must not hit holy man. Jela, he has defiled the written word. It was too late. Before Kim could ward him off, the Russian struck the old man full on the face. Next instant he was rolling over and over downhill with Kim at his throat. The blow had waked every unknown Irish devil in the boy's blood, and the sudden fall of his enemy did the rest. The lama dropped to his knees, half-stunned. The coolies, under their loads, fled up the hill as fast as plainsmen ran across the level. They had seen sacrilege unspeakable, and it behooved them to get away before the gods and devils of the hills took vengeance. The Frenchman ran towards the lama, fumbling at his revolver with some notion of making him a hostage for his companion. A shower of cutting stones—hillmen are very straight shots—drove him away, and a coolie from O Chung snatched the lama into the stampede. All came about as swiftly as the sudden mountain darkness. "'They have taken the baggage and all of the guns!' yelled the Frenchman, firing blindly into the twilight. "'All right, sir! All right! Don't shoot! I go to rescue!' said Hurry, pounding down the slope, cast himself bodily upon the delighted and astonished Kim, who was banging his breathless foe's head against the boulder. "'Go back to the coolies,' whispered the Babu in his ear. "'They have the baggage. The papers are in the kilter with the red top. But look through all. Take their papers, and specially the Murasla, King's letter. Go! The other man comes!' Kim tore uphill. A revolver bullet rang on a rock by his side, and he cowered partridge-wise. "'If you shoot,' shouted Hurry, "'they will descend and annihilate us. I have rescued the gentleman, sir. This is particularly dangerous.' "'By Jove!' Kim was thinking hard in English. "'This is damn tight place, but I think it is self-defence.' He felt in his bosom for Mahbub's gift, and uncertainly—save for a few practice shots in the Bikanir desert he had never used the little gun—pulled trigger. "'What did I say, sir?' The Babu seemed to be in tears. "'Come down here and assist to resuscitate. We are all up a tree, I tell you.' The shots ceased. There was a sound of stumbling feet, and Kim hurried upward through the gloom, swearing like a cat or a country-bred. "'Did they wound thee, Chela?' called the lama above him. "'No. And thou?' He dived into a clump of stunted firs. "'Unhurt! Come away! We go with these folks to Shamle under the snow!' "'But not before we have done justice!' a voice cried. I have got the Sahib's guns, all four. Let us go down. He struck the Holy One. We saw it. Our cattle will be barren. Our wives will cease to bear. The snows will slide upon us as we go home. Atop of all other oppression, too. The little fir clump filled with clamouring coolies, panic-stricken, and in their terror capable of anything. 
The man from O Chung clicked the breech bolt of his gun impatiently and made as to go downhill. Wait a little, holy one. They cannot go far. Wait till I return, said he. It is this person who has suffered wrong, said the lama, his hand over his brow. For that very reason, was the reply. If this person overlooks it, your hands are clean. Moreover, ye acquire merit by obedience. Wait, and we will all go to Shamli together, the man insisted. For a moment, not just so long as it needs to stuff a cartridge into a breech-loader, the lama hesitated. Then he rose to his feet and laid a finger on the man's shoulder. Hast thou heard? I say there shall be no killing. I, who was abbot of Sutsen, is it any lust of thine to be reborn as a rat or a snake under the eaves, a worm in the belly of the most mean beast? Is it thy wish to? The man from Ochung fell to his knees, for the voice boomed like a Tibetan devil-gong. Ay, ay, cried the speedy men. Do not curse us, do not curse us. It was but his zeal, holy one. Put down the rifle, fool. Anger, evil on evil, there will be no killing. Let the priest-haters go in bondage to their own acts. Just and sure is the wheel, swerving not the hair. They will be born many times in torment. His head drooped, and he leaned heavily on Kim's shoulder. I have come near to great evil, Chela, he whispered in that dead hush under the pines. I was tempted to loose the bullet, and truly in Tibet there would have been a heavy and a slow death for them. He struck me across the face upon the flesh. He slid to the ground breathing heavily, and Kim could hear the overdriven heart pump and check. "'Have they hurt him to the death?' said the O-Chung man, while the others stood mute. Kim knelt over the body in deadly fear. "'Nay!' he cried passionately. "'This is only a weakness.' Then he remembered that he was a white man, with a white man's camp-fittings at his service. "'Open the kilters!' The sahibs may have a medicine. Oh-ho! Then I know it, said the Ochang man with a laugh. Not for five years was I Yanklin sahibs shikari without knowing that medicine. I, too, have tasted it. Behold! He drew from his breast a bottle of cheap whisky, such as is sold to explorers at Leh, and cleverly forced a little between the lama's teeth. So did I when Yanklin Sahib twisted his foot beyond Astor. Aha! I have already looked into their baskets, but we will make a fair division at Shamle. Give him a little more. It is good medicine. Feel his heart goes better now. Lay his head down and rub a little on his chest. If he had waited quietly while I accounted for the Sahibs, this would never have come. But perhaps the Sahibs may chase us here.
Then it would not be wrong to shoot them with their own guns, eh? One is paid, I think, already, said Kim between his teeth. I kicked him in the groin as we went downhill. Would I had killed him! As well as to be brave when one does not live in Rampur, said one whose hut lay within a few miles of the Rajah's rickety palace. When we get a bad name among the Sahibs, none will employ us as shikaris any more. Oh, but these are not Angrisi Sahibs, not merry-minded men like Fustum Sahib or Yanklin Sahib. They are foreigners. They cannot speak Angrisi as do Sahibs. Here the Lama coughed and sat up, groping for the rosary. "'There shall be no killing,' he murmured. "'Just is the wheel, evil on evil.' "'Nay, holy one, we are all here.' The Ochang man timidly patted his feet. "'Except by thy order, no one shall be slain. Rest a while. We will make a little camp here, and later, as the moon rises, we go to Shamlech under the snow.' "'After a blow,' said a speedy man sententiously, "'it is best to sleep.' "'There is, as it were, a dizziness at the back of my neck, and a pinching in it.' Let me lay my head on thy lap, Chela. I am an old man, but not free from passion. We must think of the cause of things. Give him a blanket. We dare not light a fire, lest the Sahibs see. Better get away to Shamleh. None will follow us to Shamleh. This was the nervous Rampur man. I have been Fustum Sahib's shikari, and I am Yanklin Sahib's shikari. I should have been with Yanklin Sahib now, but for this accursed bigar, the corvée. Let two men watch below with their guns, lest the Sahibs do more foolishness. I shall not leave this holy one. They sat down a little apart from the lama, and, while listening a while, passed round a water-pipe, whose receiver was an old Day and Martin blacking-bottle. The glow of the red charcoal, as it went from hand to hand, lit up the narrow, blinking eyes, the high Chinese cheekbones, and the bull throats that melted away into the dark duffel folds round their shoulders. They looked like kobolds from some magic mime, gnomes of the hills in conclave, and while they talked the voices of the snow-waters round them diminished one by one as the night-frost choked and clogged the runnels. "'How he stood up against us!' said a speedy man, admiring. "'I remember an old ibex, out Lachterway, that Dupont Sahib, missed on a shoulder-shot seven seasons back, standing up just like him. Dupont Sahib was a good shakiri.' "'Not as good as Yanklin Sahib,' the old chung man took a pull at the whisky-bottle and passed it over. "'Now hear me, unless any other man thinks he knows more.' The challenge was not taken up. We go to Shamla when the moon rises. There we will fairly divide the baggage between us. I am content with this new little rifle and all its cartridges. Are the bears only bad on thy holding? said the mate, sucking at his pipe. No, but musk pods are worth six rupees apiece now, and thy women can have the canvas of the tents and some of the cooking gear. We will do all that at Shamla before dawn.
Then we all go our ways, remembering that we have never seen or taken service with these sahibs, who may indeed say we have stolen their baggage. That is well for thee, but what will our Raja say? Who is to tell him? These sahibs who cannot speak our talk, or the Babu, who for his own ends gave us money? Will he lead an army against us? What evidence will remain? That we do not need we shall throw on Shamle Midden, where no man has yet set foot. Who is at Shamle this summer? The place was only a grazing centre of three or four huts. The woman of Shamle. She has no love for sahibs, as we know. The others can be pleased with little presents, and here is enough for us all. He patted the fat sides of the nearest basket. But, but— I have said they are not true sahibs. All their skins and heads were bought in the bazaar at Leh. I know the marks. I showed them to ye last March. True. They were all bought skins and heads. Some had even the moth in them. That was a shrewd argument, and the O-Chang man knew his fellows. If the worst comes to the worst, I shall tell Yanklin Sahib, who is a man of merry mind, and he will laugh. We are not doing any wrong to any sahibs whom we know. They are priest-beaters. They frightened us. We fled. Who knows where we dropped the baggage? Do you think Yanklin Sahib will permit down-country police to wander all over the hills, disturbing his game? It is a far cry from Simla to Chini, and farther from Shamle to Shamle Midden. So be it, but I carry the big kilter the basket with the red top that the sahibs pack themselves every morning. Thus it is proved, said the Shamley man adroitly, that they are sahibs of no account. Who ever heard of Fostum sahib, or Yanklin sahib, or even little Peel sahib, that sits up at nights to shoot Siro? I say, who ever heard of these sahibs coming into the hills without a down-country cook and a bearer, and— and all manner of well-paid, high-handed, and oppressive folk in their tale. How can they make trouble? What of the kilter? Nothing. But it is full of the written word, books and papers in which they wrote, and strange instruments as of worship. Shamli Midden will take them all. True. But how if we insult the sahib's gods thereby? I do not like to handle the written word in that fashion and their brass idols are beyond my comprehension. It is no plunder for simple hill-folk. The old man still sleeps. Hist! We will wake his chela. The Ochang man refreshed himself and swelled with the pride of leadership. We have here, he whispered, a kilter whose nature we do not know. But I do, said Kim cautiously. The lama drew breath in natural easy sleep and kim had been thinking of hurry's last words as a player of the great game he was disposed just then to reverence the babu it is a kilter with a red top full of very wonderful things not to be handled by fools i said it i said it cried the bearer of that burden thinkest thou it will betray us not if it be given to me i can draw out its magic otherwise it will do great harm a priest always takes his share. Whisky was demoralizing the O-Chung man. It is no matter to me, 
Kim answered with the craft of his mother country. Share it among you, and see what comes. Not I. I was only jesting. Give the order. There is more than enough for us all. We go our way from Shamle in the dawn. They arranged and rearranged their artless little plans for another hour, while Kim shivered with cold and pride. The humour of the situation tickled the Irish and the Oriental in his soul. Here were the emissaries of the dread power of the North, very possibly as great in their own land as Mahbub or Colonel Crichton, suddenly smitten helpless. One of them, he privately knew, would be lame for a time. They had made promises to kings. Tonight they lay out somewhere below him, chartless, foodless, tentless, gunless, except for Haribabu, guideless. And this collapse of their great game—Kim wondered to whom they would report it—this panicky bolt into the night had come about through no craft of Hari's or contrivance of Kim's, but simply beautifully and inevitably as the capture of Mabu's fakir friends by the zealous young policeman at Umballa. They are there with nothing, and, by Jove, it is cold. I am here with all their things. Oh, they will be angry. I am sorry for Hari Babu. Kim might have saved his pity, for though at that moment the Bengali suffered acutely in the flesh, his soul was puffed and lofty. A mile down the hill on the edge of the pine forest, two half-frozen men, one powerfully sick at intervals, were varying mutual recriminations with the most poignant abuse of the Babu, who seemed distraught with terror. They demanded a plan of action. He explained that they were very lucky to be alive, that their coolies, if not then stalking them, had passed beyond recall, that the Rajah, his master, was ninety miles away, and so far from lending them money and a retinue for the similar journey, would surely cast them into prison if he had heard that they had hit a priest. He enlarged on this sin and its consequences till they bade him change the subject. Their one hope, he said, was unostentatious flight from village to village till they reached civilization, and for the hundredth time, dissolved into tears, he demanded of the high stars why the Sahibs had beaten the holy man. Ten steps would have taken Hari into the creaking gloom utterly beyond their reach, to the shelter and food of the nearest village, where glib-tongued doctors were scarce. But he preferred to endure cold, belly-pinch, bad words, and occasional blows in the company of his honoured employers. Crouched against the tree-trunk, he sniffed dolefully. "'And have you thought,' said the uninjured man hotly, "'what sort of spectacle we shall present wandering through these hills among these aborigines?' Hari Babu had thought of little else for some hours, but the remark was not to his address. "'We cannot wonder. I can hardly walk,' groaned Kim's victim. "'Perhaps the holy man will be merciful in loving-kindness, sir. Otherwise—' "'I promised myself a peculiar pleasure in emptying my revolver into that young bonds when next we meet,' was the unchristian answer. "'Revolvers? Vengeance? Bonzes?' Hari crouched lower. The war was breaking out afresh. Have you no consideration for our loss? The baggage, the baggage! 
He could hear the speaker literally dancing on the grass. "'Everything we bore, everything we have secured, our gains, eight months' work. Do you know what that means? Decidedly, it is we who can deal with Orientals. Oh, you have done well!' They fell to it in several tongues, and Hurry smiled. Kim was with the kilters, and in the kilters lay eight months of good diplomacy. There was no means of communicating with the boy, but he could be trusted. For the rest, Hari could so stage-manage the journey through the hills that Hilas, Bunar, and three hundred miles of hill-roads should tell the tale for a generation. Men who cannot control their own coolies are little respected in the hills, and the hillman has a very keen sense of humour. "'If I had done it myself,' thought Hari, it would not have been better, and by Jove, now I think of it, of course, I arranged it myself. How quick I have been! Just when I ran down hill, I thought it. The outrage was accidental, but only me could have worked it. Ah, for all it was damn well worth. Consider the moral effect upon these ignorant people. No treaties, no papers, no written documents at all, and me to interpret for them. How I shall laugh with the Colonel! I wish I had their papers also, but you cannot occupy two places in space simultaneously. That is axiomatic. End of chapter 13《Kim by Roger Kipling This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kim by Rudyard Kipling Read by Adrian Pretzelis Chapter 14 My brother kneels, so saith Kabir, to stone and brass, in heathen wise. But in my brother's voice I hear my own unanswered agonies. His God is as his fates assign. His prayer is all the world's and mine. The Prayer At moonrise the cautious coolies got under way. The lama, refreshed by his sleep and the spirit, needed no more than Kim's shoulder to bear him along, a silent, swift-striding man. They held the shale-sprinkled grass for an hour, swept round the shoulder of an immortal cliff, and climbed into a new country, entirely blocked off from all sight of Chinny Valley. A huge pasture-ground ran up, fan-shaped, to the living snow. At its base was perhaps half an acre of flat land, on which stood a few soil and timber huts. Behind them, for hill-fashion they were perched on the edge of all things, the ground fell sheer two thousand feet to Shamlich Midden, where never yet man has set foot. The men made no motion to divide the plunder till they had seen the lama bedded down in the best room of the place, with Kim shampooing his feet, Mohammedan fashion. "'We will send food,' said the Ochang man, "'and the red-topped kilter. By dawn there will be none to give evidence one way or the other.' If anything is not needed in the kilter, see here." He pointed through the window, opening into space that was filled with moonlight, reflected from the snow. 
and threw out an empty whisky-bottle. "'No need to listen for the fall. This is the world's end,' he said, and went out. The lama looked forth, a hand on either sill, with eyes that shone like yellow opals. From the enormous pit before him white peaks lifted themselves yearning to the moonlight. The rest was as the darkness of interstellar space. "'These,' he said slowly, "'are indeed my hills. Thus should a man abide, perched above the world, separated from delights, considering vast matters.' "'Yes, if he has a chela to prepare tea for him, and to fold a blanket for his head, and to chase out calving cows.' A smoky lamp burned in a niche, but the full moonlight beat it down, and by the mixed light swooping above the food-cups and bags Kim moved like a tall ghost. "'Ay, but now I have let the blood cool.' My head still beats and drums, and there is a cord round the back of my neck. No wonder. It was a strong blow. May he who dealt it, but for my own passions there would have been no evil. What evil? Thou hast saved the Sahibs from the death they deserved a hundred times. The lesson is not well learned, Chela. The lama came to rest on a folded blanket, as Kim went forward with his evening routine. The blow was but a shadow upon a shadow, evil in itself. My legs weary apace these latter days. It met evil in me anger, rage, and a lust to return evil. These wrought in my blood, woke tumult in my stomach, and dazzled my ears." Here he drank scalding block tea ceremonially, taking the hot cup from Kim's hand. Had I been passionless, the evil blow would have done only bodily evil, a scar or a bruise, which is illusion. But my mind was not abstracted, for rushed in straightway a lust to let the speedy men kill. In fighting that lust my soul was torn and wrenched beyond a thousand blows. Not till I had repeated the blessings—he meant the Buddhist Beatitudes—did I achieve calm. But the evil planted in me by that moment's carelessness works out to its end. Just is thou will, swerving not a hair. Learn the lesson, Jela. It is too high for me, Kim muttered. I am still all shaken. I am glad I hurt the man. I felt that sleeping upon my knees in the wood below. 
It disquieted me in my dreams, the evil in thy soul working through to mine. Yet on the other hand, he loosed his rosary, I have acquired merit by saving two lives, the lives of those that wronged me. Now I must see into the cause of things. The boat of my soul staggers. Sleep and be strong. That is wisest. I meditate. There is a need greater than thou knowest. Till the dawn, hour after hour, as the moonlight paled on the high peaks, and that which had been belted blackness on the sides of the far hills showed as tender green forest, the lama stared fixedly at the wall. From time to time he groaned. Outside the barred door, where discomforted kine came to ask for their old stable, Shamleh and the coolies gave itself up to plunder and riotous living. The Ochang man was their leader, and once they had opened the Sahib's tinned foods and found that they were very good, they dared not turn back. Shamleh Kitchen Midden took the dunnage. When Kim, after a night of bad dreams, stole forth to brush his teeth in the morning chill, a fair-coloured woman with turquoise-studded headgear drew him aside. "'The others have gone. They left thee—' This kilter, as the promise was, I do not love sahibs, but thou wilt make us a charm in return for it. We do not wish little Chamla to get a bad name on account of the accident. I am the woman of Shamle. She looked him over with bold, bright eyes, unlike the usual furtive glance of hill-women. Assuredly, but it must be done in secret. She raised the heavy kilter like a toy, and slung it into her own hut. "'Out, and bar the door. Let none come near till it is finished,' said Kim. "'But afterwards we may talk.' Kim tilted the kilter on the floor. A cascade of survey instruments, books, diaries, letters, maps, and queerly scented native correspondence. At the very bottom was an embroidered bag covering a sealed, gilded, and illuminated document such as one king sends to another. Kim caught his breath with delight, and reviewed the situation from a sahib's point of view. "'The books I do not want. Besides, they are logarithms. Survey, I suppose?' He laid them aside. "'The letters I do not understand, but Colonel Crichton will. They must all be kept.' The maps—they draw better maps than me, of course. All the native letters—oh-ho, and particularly the Marasla. He sniffed the embroidered bag. That must be from Hilas or Buna, and Hari Babu spoke truth, by Jove. It is a fine haul. I wish Hari could know. The rest must go out of the window. He fingered a superb prismatic compass and the shiny top of a theodolite. But, after all, a sahib cannot very well steal, and the things might be inconvenient evidence later. 
he sorted out every scrap of manuscript, every map, and the native letters. They made one softish slab. The three locked, feral-backed books, with five worn pocket-books, he put aside. The letters and the morassla I must carry inside my coat and under my belt, and the handwritten books I must put into the food-bag. It will be heavy. No, I do not think that there is anything more. If there is, the coolies have thrown it down the cood. So that is all right. Now, you go too. He repacked the kilter with all he meant to lose, and hove it up on to the window-sill. A thousand feet below lay a long, lazy, round-shouldered bank of mist, as yet untouched by the morning sun. A thousand feet below that was a hundred-year-old pine forest. He could see the green tops looking like a bed of moss when a wind eddy thinned the cloud. No, I don't think anyone will go after you. The wheeling basket vomited its contents as it dropped. The theodolite hit a jutting cliff-edge and exploded like a shell. The books, inkstands, paint-boxes, compasses, and rulers showed for a few seconds like a swarm of bees. Then they vanished, and though Kim, hanging half out of the window, strained his young ears, never a sound came up from the gulf. Five hundred, a thousand rupees could not buy them, he thought sorrowfully. It was very wasteful, but I have all their other stuff, everything they did, I hope. Now, how the deuce am I to tell Hari Babu, and what the deuce am I to do? And my old man is sick. I must tie up the letters in oilskin. That is something to do first, else they will get all sweated. And I am all alone. He bound them into a neat package, swedging down the stiff, sticky oilskin at the corners, for his roving life had made him as methodical as an old hunter in matters of the road. Then, with double care, he packed away the books at the bottom of the food-bag. The woman rapped at the door. "'But thou hast made no charm,' she said, looking about. "'There is no need.' Kim had completely overlooked the necessity for a little patter-talk. The woman laughed at his confusion irreverently. "'None for thee. Thou canst cast a spell by a mere winking of an eye.' But think of us poor people when thou art gone. They were all too drunk last night to hear a woman. Thou art not drunk? I am a priest. Kim had recovered himself, and the woman, being aught but unlovely, thought best to stand on his office. I warn them that the Saibs will be angry, and will make an inquisition, and a report to the Rajah. There is also the Babu with them. Clerks have long tongues. Is that all thy trouble? The plan rose fully formed in Kim's mind, and he smiled ravishingly. Not all, quoth the woman, putting out a hard brown hand, all covered with turquoises set in silver. I can finish that in a breath, he went on quickly. The babu is the very Hakim, thou hast heard of him, who was wandering among the hills by Ziglau. I know him. He will tell for the sake of a reward. Saibs cannot distinguish one hillman from another, but Babus have eyes for men and women. 
Carry a word to him from me. There is nothing I would not do for thee. He accepted the compliment calmly, as men must in lands where women make the love, tore a leaf from a notebook, and, with a patient, indelible pencil, wrote in gross shikast, the script that bad little boys use when they write dirt on walls. I have everything they have written, their pictures of the country and many letters, especially the Mirasla. Tell me what to do. I am at Shamlich under the snow. The old man is sick. Take this to him. It will altogether shut his mouth. He cannot have gone far. Indeed, no. They are still in the forest across the spur. Our children went to watch them when the light came, and have cried the news as they moved. Kim looked his astonishment. But from the edge of the sheep pasture floated a shrill, kite-like trill. A child, tending cattle, had picked it up from a brother or sister on the far side of the slope that commanded Chinny Valley. "'My husbands are all out there gathering wood.' She drew a handful of walnuts from her bosom, split one neatly, and began to eat. Kim affected blank ignorance. "'Dost thou not know the meaning of the walnut, priest?' she said coyly, and handed him the half-shells. Well thought of, he slipped the piece of paper between them quickly. "'Hast thou a little wax to close them on this letter?' The woman sighed aloud, and Kim relented. "'There is no payment till service has been rendered. Carry this to the babu, and say it was sent by the son of the charm.' "'Aye, truly, truly, by a magician who is like a sahib.' "'Nay, a son of the charm.' and ask if there be any answer. But if he offer a rudeness, I am afraid." Kim laughed. He is, I have no doubt, very tired and very hungry. The hills make cold bedfellows. Hi, my—' It was on the tip of his tongue to say mother, but he turned it to sister. Thou art a wise and witty woman. By this time all the villages know what has befallen the sahibs, eh? True. News was at Ziglau by midnight, and by to-morrow should be at Kotgar. The villages are both afraid and angry. No need. Tell the villagers to feed the sahibs and pass them on in peace. We must get them quietly away from our valleys. To steal is one thing. To kill— another. The Babu will understand, and there will be no after-complaints. Be swift. I must tend my master when he wakes. So be it. After service, thou hast said, comes the reward. I am the woman of Shamlech, and I hold from the Raja. I am no common bearer of babes. Shamlech is thine, who fed horn and hide. Milk and butter, take or leave. She turned resolutely uphill, her silver necklaces clicking on her broad breast to meet the morning sun fifteen hundred feet above them. This time Kim thought in the vernacular as he waxed down the oilskin edges of the packets. How can a man follow the way or the great game when he is so always pestered by women? There was the girl at Acrola of the Ford. 
And there was the scullion's wife behind the dovecot, not counting the others. And now comes this one. When I was a child it was well enough, but now I am a man, and they will not regard me as a man. Walnuts, indeed! Ho, ho! It is almonds in the plains!" He went out to levy on the village, not with a begging-bowl, which might do for down-country, but in the manner of a prince. Shamlech's summer population is only three families—four women and eight or nine men. They were all full of tinned meats and mixed drinks, from ammoniated quinine to white vodka, for they had taken their full share of the overnight loot. The neat continental tents had been cut up and shared long ago, and there were patent aluminium saucepans abroad. But they considered the lama's presence a perfect safeguard against all consequences, and impenitently brought Kim of their best, even to a drink of chang, the barley beer that comes from Ladakh way. Then they thawed out in the sun, and sat with their legs hanging over infinite abysses, chattering, laughing, and smoking. They judged India and its government solely from their experience of wandering sahibs who had employed them or their friends as shikaris. Kim heard tales of shots missed upon ibex, suro, or makur by sahibs twenty years in their graves, every detail lighted from behind like twigs on treetops seen against lightning. They told him of their little diseases and, more important, the diseases of their tiny, sure-footed cattle, of trips as far as Kotgar, where the strange missionaries live, and beyond even to marvellous Simla, where the streets are paved with silver, and any one, look you, can get service with the sahibs who ride about in two-wheeled carts and spend money with a spade. Presently, grave and aloof, Walking very heavily, the lama joined himself to the chatter under the eaves, and they gave him great room. The thin air refreshed him, and he sat on the edge of precipices with the best of them, and, when talk languished, flung pebbles into the void. Thirty miles away, as the eagle flies, lay the next range, seamed and channeled, and pitted with little patches of brush, forests each a day's dark march. Behind the village, Shamleh Hill, itself cut off all view to southward. It was like sitting in a swallow's nest, under the eaves of the roof of the world. From time to time the lama stretched out his hand, and with a little low-voiced prompting would point out the road to speak and north across the Parangla. "'Beyond where the hills lie thickest lies Ditchen,' he meant Hanley. The great monastery. Star Chan Ras Chen built it, and of him there runs this tale. Whereupon he told it. A fantastic piled narrative of bewitchment and miracles that set Shamley a gasping. Turning west a little, he speared for the green hills of Kulu, and sought Kailung under the glaciers. For thither came I in the old days, from Leh I came, over the Baralachi. Yes, yes, we know it, said the far-faring people of Shamleh. 
and I slept two nights with the priests of Kalong. These are hills of my delight, shadows blessed above all other shadows. There my eyes opened on this world, there my eyes were opened to this world. There I found enlightenment, and there I girt my loins for my search. Out of the hills I came, the high hills, and the strong winds. Oh, just is the wheel! He blessed them in detail. The great glaciers, the naked rocks, the piled moraines and tumbled shale dry upland hidden salt lake age-old timber and fruitful water-shot valley one after the other as a dying man blesses his folk and kim marvelled at his passion yes yes there is no place like our hills said the people of shamlech and they fell to wondering how a man could live in the hot terrible plains where the cattle run as big as elephants unfit to plough on a hillside, where village touches village, they had heard, for a hundred miles, where folk went about stealing in gangs, and what the robbers spared, the police carried utterly away. So the still forenoon wore through, and at the end of it Kim's messenger dropped from the steep pasture as unbreathed as when she had set out. I sent a word to the Hakim, Kim explained, while she made reverence. He joined himself to the idolaters. Nay, I remember he did a healing upon one of them. He has acquired merit, though the healed employed his strength for evil. Just is the wheel. What of the Hakim? I feared that thou hast been bruised, and I knew he was wise. Kim took the waxed walnut shell and read in English on the back of his note. Your favour received. Cannot get away from present company at present, but shall take them into Simla. After which, hope to rejoin you. Inexpedient to follow angry gentlemen. Return by same road you came, and will overtake. Highly gratified about correspondence due to my forethought. He says, Holy One, that he will escape from the idolaters, and will return to us. Shall we wait a while at Shamlech, then? The lama looked long and lovingly upon the hills, and shook his head. That may not be, Chela. For my bones outward do I desire it, but it is forbidden. I have seen the cause of things. Why, when the hills give thee back thy strength day by day? Remember we were weak and fainting down below there in the dune. I became strong to do evil and to forget. A brawler and a swashbuckler. Upon the hillside was I. Kim bit back a smile. Just and perfect is the wheel swerving not a hair. When I was a man, a long time ago, I did pilgrimage to Guru Chuan. 
among the poplars he pointed botanwards where they keep the sacred horse quiet be quiet said shamlech all arow he speaks of jamlinintkor the horse that can go round the world in a day i speak to my chela only said the lama in gentle reproof and they scattered like frost on south eaves of a morning i did not seek truth in those days but the talk of doctrine all illusion i drank the beer and ate the bread of guru chuan next day one said we go out to fight sangor gutok down the valley to discover mark again how lust is tied to anger which abbot shall bear rule in the valley and take the profit of the prayers they print at sangor gutok i went and we fought a day but how holy one with our long pen-cases as i could have shown i say we fought under the poplars both abbots and all the monks and one laid open my forehead to the bone see he tilted back his cap and showed a puckered silvery scar just and perfect is the wheel yesterday the scar itched and after fifty years i recalled how it was dealt and the face of him who dealt it dwelling a little in illusion follow that which thou didst see strife and stupidity this is the wheel the idolater's blow fell upon the scar then i was shaken in my soul my soul was darkened and the boat of my soul rocked upon the waters of illusion not till i came to shamlech could i meditate upon the cause of things or trace the running grass-roots of evil i strove all the long night but holy one thou art innocent of all evil may i be thy sacrifice kim was genuinely distressed at the old man's sorrow and mahbub ali's phrase slipped out unawares in the dawn the lama went on more gravely ready rosary clicking between the slow sentences came enlightenment it is here i am an old man hill-bred hill-fed never to sit down among my hills three years i travelled through hind but can earth be stronger than mother earth my stupid body yearned to the hills and the snow of the hills from below there i said and it is true my search is sure so at the kulu woman's house i turned hillward over persuaded by myself 
there is no blame to the Hakim. He, following desire, foretold that the hills would make me strong. They strengthened me to do evil, to forget my search. I delighted in life and the lust of life. I desired strong slopes to climb. I cast about to find them. I measured the strength of my body, which is evil, against the high hills. I made a mock of thee when thy breath came short under Jamnotri. I jested when thou wouldst not face the snow of the pass. But what harm? I was afraid. It was just. I am not a hillman. And I love thee for thy new strength. More than once I remember. He rested his cheek dolefully on his hand. I sought thy praise and the Hakim's for the mere strength of my legs. Thus evil followed evil till the cup was full. Just is the wheel. All Hind for three years did me all honour. From the fountain of wisdom in the wonder-house, too, he smiled. A little child playing by a big gun. The world prepared my road. And why? Because we loved thee. It is only the fever of the blow. I myself am still sick and shaken. No, it was because I was upon the way. Turned as are Sinen symbols to the purpose of the lore. I departed from that ordinance. The tune was broken, followed the punishment. In my own hills, on the edge of my own country, in the very place of my evil desire, comes the buffet here. He touched his brow as a novice is beaten when he misplaces the cups. So am I beaten, who was abbot of Sutsen. No word, look you, but a blow, Chela. But the Sahibs did not know thee, Holy One? We were well matched. Ignorance and lust meant ignorant and lust upon the road, and they begat anger. The blow was a sign to me, who am no better than a strayed yak, that my place is not here. Who can read the cause of an act is halfway to freedom. Back to the path, says the blow. The hills are not made for thee. Thou canst not choose freedom, and go in bondage to the delight of life. Would that we had never met that cursed Russian. Our Lord himself cannot make the wheel swing backward, and for my merit that I had acquired, I gain yet another sign. He put his hand in his bosom, and drew forth the wheel of life. Look! I considered this after I had meditated. 
there remains untorn by the idolater no more than the breadth of my finger-nail i see so much then is the span of my life in this body i have served the wheel all my days now the wheel serves me but for the merit i have acquired in guiding thee upon the way there would have been added to me yet another life ere i had found my river is that plain chela kim stared at the brutally disfigured chart from left to right diagonally the rent ran from the eleventh house where desire gives birth to the child as it is drawn by the tibetans across the human and animal worlds to the fifth house the empty house of the senses the logic was unanswerable before our lord one enlightenment the lama folded all away with reverence he was tempted i too have been tempted but it is finished the arrow fell in the plains not in the hills therefore what make we here shall we at least wait for the hakim i know how long i shall live in this body what can a hakim do but thou art all sick and shaken thou canst not walk how can i be sick if i see freedom he rose unsteadily to his feet then i must get food from the village oh the weary road kim felt that he too needed rest that is lawful let us eat and go the arrow fell in the plains but i yielded to desire make ready chela kim turned to the woman with the turquoise headgear who had been idly pitching pebbles over the cliff she smiled very kindly i found him like a strayed buffalo in a cornfield the babu snorting and sneezing with cold he was so hungry that he forgot his dignity and gave me sweet words the sahibs have nothing she flung out an empty palm one is very sick about the stomach thy work kim nodded with a bright eye i spoke to the bengali first and to the people of a nearby village after the sahibs will be given food as they need it nor will the people ask money the plunder is already distributed the babu makes lying speeches to the sahibs why does he not leave them out of the greatness of his heart was never a bengali yet had one bigger than a dried walnut but it is no matter now as to walnuts after service comes reward i have said the village is thine it is my loss kim began even now i had planned desirable things in my heart which there is no need to go through the compliments proper to these occasions he sighed deeply but my master led by a vision ah what can old eyes see except a full begging-bowl turns from this village to the plains again bid him stay kim shook his head i know my holy one and his rage if he be crossed he replied impressively 
His curses shake the hills. Pity they did not save him from a broken head. I heard that thou wast the tiger-hearted one who smote the Sahib. Let him dream a little longer. Stay! Hill-woman, said Kim, with austerity that could not harden the outlines of his young oval face. These matters are too high for thee. The gods be good to us. Since when have men and women been other than men and women? A priest is a priest. He says he will go upon this hour. I am his chela, and I go with him. We need food for the road. He is an honoured guest in all the villages, but—he broke into a pure boy's grin—the food here is good. Give me some. What if I do not give it to thee? I am the woman of this village. Then I curse thee a little, not greatly, but enough to remember. He could not help smiling. Thou hast cursed me already by the down-dropped eyelash and the uplifted chin. Curses? Why should I care for mere words? She clenched her hands upon her bosom. But I would not have thee go in anger, thinking hardly of me, a gatherer of cow-dung and grass at Shamlech, but still a woman of substance. I think nothing, said Kim, but that I am grieved to go, for I am very weary, and that we need food. Here is the bag. The woman snatched it angrily. I was foolish, she said. Who is thy woman in the plains, fair or black? I was fair once. Laughest thou? Once, long ago, if thou canst believe, a sahib looked upon me with favour. Once, long ago, I wore European clothes at the mission-house yonder. She pointed toward Kotgar. Once, long ago, I was Kurlistian, and spoke English, as the sahib speak it. Yes, my sahib said he would return and wed me. Yes, wed me. He went away. I had nursed him when he was sick, but he never returned. Then I saw that the gods of the Calistians lied. I went back to my own people. I have never set eyes on a sahib since. Do not laugh at me. The fit is past, little priestling. Thy face and thy walk and thy fashion of speech put me in mind of my sahib, though thou art only a wandering mendicant to whom I give a dole. Curse me? Thou canst neither curse nor bless. She set her hands on her hips and laughed bitterly. Thy gods are lies, thy works are lies, thy words are lies. There are no gods under all the heavens, I know it. But for a while I thought it was my sahib come back, and he was my god. Yes, once I made music on a piano in the mission-house at Kotgar. Now I give alms to priests who are heathen. She wound up with the English word, and tied the mouth of the brimming bag. "'I wait for thee, Chela,' said the lama, leaning against the doorpost. The woman swept the tall figure with her eyes. "'He walk? He cannot cover half a mile. Whither would old bones go?' At this Kim, already perplexed by the lama's collapse and foreseeing the weight of the bag, fairly lost his temper. What is it to thee, woman of ill omen, where he goes? Nothing. 
But something to thee, priest with a sahib's face. Wilt thou carry him on thy shoulders? I go to the plains. None must hinder my return. I have wrestled with my soul till I am strengthless. The stupid body is spent, and we are far from the plains. Behold! she said simply, and drew aside to let Kim see her own utter helplessness. Curse me! Maybe it will give him strength. Make a charm. Call on thy great god. Thou art a priest. She turned away. The lama had squatted limply, still holding by the doorpost. One cannot strike down an old man that he recovers again like a boy in a night. Weakness bowed him to the earth, but his eyes that hung on Kim were alive and imploring. "'It is all well,' said Kim. "'It is the thin air that weakens thee. In a little while we go. It is the mountain sickness. I, too, am a little sick at stomach.' and he knelt and comforted with such poor words as came first to his lips. Then the woman returned, more erect than ever. "'Thy God's useless, eh? Try mine. I am the woman of Shamlech.' She hailed hoarsely, and there came out of a cow-pen her two husbands, and three others with a dooley, the rude native litter of the hills, that they use for carrying the sick and for visits of state." These cattle—she did not condescend to look at them—are thine for so long as thou shalt need. "'But we will not go similar way. We will not go near the Sahibs,' cried the first husband. "'They will not run away as the others did, nor will they steal baggage. Two I know for weaklings. Stand to the pent-pole, Sonu and Tari.' They obeyed swiftly. "'Lower now, and lift in that holy man. I will see to the village and your virtuous wives till ye return.' "'When will that be?' "'Ask the priests. Do not pester me. Lay the food-bag at the foot. It balances better so.' "'Oh, holy one, thy hills are kinder than our plains,' cried Kim, relieved, as the lama tottered to the litter. "'It is a very king's bed.' a place of honour and ease, and we owe it to— A woman of ill omen, I need thy blessings as much as I do thy curses. It is my order, and none of thine. Lift and away. Here, hast thou money for the road? She beckoned Kim to her hut, and stooped above a battered English cash-box under her cot. I do not need anything, said Kim, angered where he should have been grateful i am already rudely loaded with favours she looked up with a curious smile and laid a hand on his shoulder at least thank me i am foul-faced and a hill-woman but as thy talk goes i have acquired merit shall i show thee how the sahibs render thanks and her hard eyes softened i am but a wandering priest said kim his eyes lighting in answer. Thou needst neither my blessings nor my curses. Nay, but for one little moment thou canst overtake the duly in ten strides. If thou wast a sahib, shall I show thee what thou wouldst do? How if I guess, though, said Kim, and putting his arm around her waist, he kissed her on the cheek, adding in English, Thank you very much, my dear. Kissing is practically unknown among Asiatics, 
which may have been the reason that she leaned back with wide-open eyes and a face of panic. "'Next time,' Kim went on, "'you must not be so sure of your heathen priests. Now I say good-bye.' He held out his hand, English fashion. She took it mechanically. "'Good-bye, my dear.' "'Good-bye, and—and—she was remembering her English words one by one. "'You will come back again. Good-bye, and the God bless you." Half an hour later, as the creaking litter jolted up the hill-path that leads southeasterly from Shamlech, Kim saw a tiny figure at the hut-door, waving a white rag. "'She has acquired merit above all others,' said the lama, "'for to set a man upon the way to freedom is half as great as though she herself had found it.' "'Hm,' said Kim, thoughtfully, considering the past. "'It may be that I have acquired merit also. At least she did not treat me like a child.' He hitched the front of his robe, where lay the slab of documents and maps, restowed the precious food-bag at the lama's feet, laid his hand on the litter's edge, and buckled down to the slow pace of the grunting husbands. "'These also!' acquire merit said the lama after three miles more than that they shall be paid in silver quoth kim the woman of shamlech had given it to him and it was only fair he argued that her men should earn it back again End of chapter fourteen Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.